there is a curious compression of of, uh, of literacy, and I and you really now they can probably pass tests. See what I'm saying? That that a kid can pass a test, but when it comes to actually communicating to somebody who's an outside uh, observer with the with writ, written word, almost impossible. Fascinating. Yet you find on the other end of the scale, you find a few people who write uh, like uh, you would never expected anybody to write in the same area years ago. So it's hard to tell. But I can say this, that it's a fantastic depression of, of literacy. Just amazing. I, I, got a, I got a letter the other day from a young kid. He's, he's, he's a, he says he was writing from his school paper. He's the editor of the school university newspaper. And he's the editor. And, and uh, he, was, he was majoring in journalism, here he is, he's the editor. He says, never seen a, a more crudely written, badly spelled, ineptly conceived letter. And I, just, I passed it around the office, I said, yeah, will you believe this? Now it's the way it goes, you know. I'm making no value judgments here, except to say that it is quite obvious to many people that literacy is slowly declining in the West, along with morality and a lot of other things, you know. It's a, it's a fascinating change that's come about. And uh, this kid came up, you know, we're talking, sitting there drinking his coffee in the, in the coffee shop, and he says, uh, he says, hey, chef, he says, yeah, does it occur to you that, that, uh, that some of your shows uh, that, that have been taped by kids, that is the literature. <laughs> that is, and that could very well be, you know. You know, it's, uh, that, that, that the literature is really the spoken word. It no longer has the symbolic word and the decline of writing is uh, maybe part and parcel with the rise of media. In other words, as television and radio and all these other media records and so on rise to greater and greater, greater and greater heights, that uh, that the printed page has become less and less of a media medium. Excuse me. Uh, and until finally, he says, can you imagine twenty thousand years from now? He says that uh, we may have. Uh, there'll be a great discovery by a group of scientists, and they'll call it the Dead Sea Tapes. <laughs> you know, because uh, yeah, uh, that's the only kind of thing they'll be able to understand. By then, writing will have disappeared almost completely, and it's, writing will be understood only by computers. You know, computers still deal in abstract uh, language uh, skills. In other words, the computer has a whole bunch of symbols printed on the bottom of your test uh, and, and the bottom of your checks, and and anything to do with people. It's all put in symbols, little figures and little squares and circles. You've seen those things. Well, that's the same as writing. In other words, writing is a substitute for speech. And uh, in, in, in the end, it, it may become ultimately speech itself. Of course, it is for a computer. Uh, and there are a few computers that talk. So I, can you imagine the idea of the Dead Sea tapes? And they can't figure out how to play them. Of course, by that time, tape recorders and everything else will have advanced so tremendously that the early tape recorders, which we're living with today, they will be early, uh, you know, 20,000 years from now. They will be ancient instruments. They will be like stone axes. Uh, not many people can make a good stone axe today, but a guy, say, 25,000 years ago could turn out a fairly effective stone axe. You know, he had to. But uh, by the year, uh, let's say by the year 21748, uh, 20,000 years or more from now, the, 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 the tape recorders that we have, that we're using, and the equipment that we're using, 
will actually be very primitive equipment, in fact, so much so that it will probably be, that equipment will probably be almost opaque to the people of that time. They can't figure out how to work it. You know, that, that brings up an interesting point. I don't know how I got on this subject, but you know that, uh, that in, uh, in museums, uh, particularly there's a museum out in Chicago called the Museum of Science and Industry, where they have gathered uh, all kinds of things that are like machines and stuff. And of course, you, you take a museum of art, uh, even say the, the Metropolitan Museum, this is all self-explanatory. You, you, here's a big tapestry. Well, you, you, you know that it's an art form that is no longer viable. Nobody works much in tapestry, and it's very religious in content and symbolic and all. But you recognize the fact that it is a work of art. You know, this is a, this is a work of art. But in museums of science and industry, uh, they have machines, as a matter of fact, that, that, uh, that have been preserved, that go back to the time of the early Industrial Revolution and even before. They have no idea what they were used for. Have you ever seen that out? I mean, a machine that, that is in the museum, and they say, we do not know what in the heck it was used for. There it is. It's got wheels and little things all over it, and ratchets, and... And, uh, it's got cogs and it's got buttons and stuff that you can, and it's all made out of brass and totally, totally uh, uh, bearinged up and oiled, and, and the thing does something, but nobody knows what it does. Well, to the guy of the period, of course, obviously, he knew what it was. He was sitting there using the thing for about nine years, and there must have been thousands of others like it. You know, working these things away, turning out the snuff boxes or whatever it was, and. Uh, and slowly the machine drifted up to the attic, and finally it drifted down into the cellar when the guy stopped chewing snuff or eating a gum root or whatever this thing dealt with. And, and years went by, and all that was left of it was the machine and no record of what it was used for. And so now it sits in a glass case. And, and, and it has occurred to me, when I, uh, this is one of the reasons why I dig museums, because you know, a lot of people never go to museums think, that this, this bothers them uh, because uh, Americans don't want to be reminded that there will be 20,000 years past ultimately and none of us will be around. That, that bothers people, you know, the, the now people. Remember the now people? Remember when there were all those now people? I wonder where the now people are. I guess they're the then people now. They've changed. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, that is the now people. Really great. You remember the beautiful people? That's disappeared. You'll find an occasional reference to the beautiful people in some, you know, magazines like uh, uh, Cosmo. Once in a while, I refer to the beautiful, meaning their readers, of course. Uh, but the, the beautiful people were a really great concept. That that disappeared. Uh, do you remember the flower people? They're gone. Uh, it's terrible to be an outdated people. You know, so you walk around saying, "Well, I'm an out person." People, now person. What do you mean, now person? Well, you know, no, I'm an out person. And, uh, and nobody knows what an now person is anymore. And you're still one. You remember the swingers? You remember that crowd, the swingers? That was that was Sammy Davis Jr. and all that gang. Remember the swingers? <laughs> they, they're they're, they're not long since disappeared into the limbo of uh, of passing phases. But uh, nobody nobody can remember what they what they really meant, you know. And I think machines are like that. Can you imagine one day? A guy in a in a laboratory, some kind of an archaeological laboratory, trying to figure out 
one, one of our things is that seems perfectly obvious. To, for example, there is a, there's, a, there's an unbelievably uh, kooky-looking hair dryer, which you see advertised on TV. It looks like a plastic uh, blow-up helmet of some kind. It's a crazy-looking helmet. Have you seen that thing? And uh, <laughs> imagine these guys trying to figure out what in the hell this thing is. Uh, and 20,000 years from now, they're trying to figure out what this, this, this strange thing, they find one someplace. And uh, there's no record left of it, because so much of this stuff, uh, uh, nobody writes about it. They just uh, come on TV and they talk about it, and then it disappears. And I, I'm, you know, I'm convinced that a lot of the stuff that we, uh, that we recognize, just absolutely without any question today, will be completely opaque to those who will be looking at it, say, 15,000 years from now. And maybe not even that long. Maybe just a thousand years. Which is not long historically, you know. But uh, for example, uh, uh, you talk about uh, how machines disappeared. The other day, I was in a place down in the, uh, uh, down downtown in New York. You know, you go through these places where they sell old radio parts and stuff, and there's all kinds of equipment piled up. You know, all kinds of stuff that says uh, special today, seven cents a pound. Take it out, and uh, you know, there's all kinds of weird-looking equipment sitting around. And uh, there, were, there were a bunch of guys standing around looking at this piece of equipment thing. And they absolutely could not figure out what it was. These guys were looking at it, trying to figure out what it was. Well, I took one look at it, and I said, I remember what that thing is. There I was, you know. Uh, and yet these guys, well, many of them were older than I was. But somehow, the memory, many people don't have much memory or something. I said, I know what that thing is. And the guy says, what is that? Well, what is this thing? I said, can we? You don't know what that is, huh? He says, well, it, it, it looks kind of vaguely familiar. But uh, I, I don't know what it is. You know what it was? It was a wire recorder. A wire recorder. Now, I'm sure that a lot of people who only know about tape recorders would not recognize a wire recorder. They have a suspicion that it is some kind of a recorder because it looks a little like a, a tape recorder, but it's, <laughs> there's no way you could put any kind of a tape on it. And, and it has this crazy little spool with all kinds of what looks like a, a piano wire flying all over the place. And uh, I said, that's a wire recorder. And I said, what do you mean a wire recorder? I said, it records on wire. He said, you mean like a tape recorder, like, like, a, like, a, real, like a real recorder? I said, yeah. Records a liar. And then he says, oh, wow, man, far out, <laughs> far out. You know, anything, anything that's, uh, that, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's just far out, man, wow, far out. Which reminds me, this is WOR New York at RKO General Station. And uh, can you imagine a thousand years from now trying to figure out what this is about? When you ask tough questions, you better have the answers. And we do. Example, the beer you drink. Do you really like its flavor, or do you drink it out of habit? Do you know there's one absolutely great tasting beer? Do you know it's Valentine? Why don't you try a Valentine beer tonight? Who do we think we are asking these tough questions? The people with the answer. The only answer. Valentine. Yeah, Valentine. Uh, brewed by the P. Valentine Brewing Company of Princeton, Rhode Island. You know, speaking of that, I'll tell you a funny thing. You know, speaking of, of uh, things that fade out, a friend of mine 
grew up in Brooklyn. And, uh, he, yeah, he, he's about, oh, I'd say in his mid-30s, something like that. And, uh, you know, just a guy walking around. It's not like he's 500 years old or anything like that. He's, uh, you know, grew up in Brooklyn. And uh, recently, his mother sold the house that he lived in when he was a kid. And they uh, they had all kinds of junk down in the basement and uh, in the attic and stuff. They just cleaned out a lot of stuff, and they kept a few pieces of furniture. And his mother moved to an apartment. She didn't want to have the house to take care of and all that. And they had all this junk that, that had been her, you know, his mother's and is down the basement. And so he, uh, he he's the kind that doesn't have much of a historical sense as, as far as that goes. And so he, among other things, they had a tray, a tray, you know, the kind of tray that you serve drinks on, just a round metal tray with a with a about an inch uh, a little. Uh, fence around it, and it was a tray, it was a lithograph tray, a metal tray, about, uh, oh, 15 inches in diameter, just a tray. The kind that's used in restaurants, really, that kind, you know, where, where you're in a bar or something and a guy serving the drinks, he brings this tray back. Well, this tray was lithographed, and it had the name of a beer on it, a New York beer, and I had never heard of this beer at all, yeah, and, and no way, and, and I said to him, I said to to, to my buddy Frank, I says, where did she get this? He says, well, uh, he says, this is a big beer, apparently, a uh, big Brooklyn beer. And uh, one of their big promotions was this beer. Now, I'm sure that people who were drinking this beer at the time could never conceive of the day when that beer would, uh, would be out uh, gone and no one would ever remember it. Well, the name of the beer, and he gave me this tray. See, now I've got this great tray, and it's got all kinds of uh, lithographed flowers and stuff, and, and a big stein lithographed on it with the with the foam pouring out all over it. And the name of the beer is Engelhart beer. Did you ever hear of that beer? Never heard of it in my life. And yet, it was a big New York beer, which uh, which means, of course, again historically, that stuff that we take for granted one day will be completely uh, will be completely gone. Uh, in fact, uh, one day somebody sent me in the mail a bottle that this person had found somewhere in a store upstate in New York. And uh, it was a bottle that was it, was, it was an old store that was being torn down and it had been a drugstore many, many years before. And this bottle was absolutely in mint condition. It was it was a little tiny bottle, about, uh, oh, I'd say about two inches tall. It was tiny in the sense it was a little thin bottle. It was quite, almost like a, uh, a perfume bottle or something like that. But it was dark brown glass, and it had a cork that was really sunken down into it, just like, a, like the cork would be in a, in a wine bottle. And it was in a box, a green box. And, and inside the box was the instructions for this stuff. And it, there it was, absolutely mint condition. And it was a very famous cough medicine of the day. I've never heard of this stuff. It was, it was you know, completely a, a, a mysterious stuff to me. And it was it was made out of whorehound. It said, uh, Dr. Hoxie's Magic Whorehound Cough Elixir. <laughs> and, and, and the instructions inside, I open up the instructions, says, Millions of people have found blessed, sure relief from the hacking coughs and the, 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 the terrible uh, distress 
of bronchial difficulty. Dr. Hoxie's uh, magic whorehound cough elixir is guaranteed to, to perform absolute miracles in the upper bronchial tract. It says it contains the elixir of uh, rare uh, spices and, and rare medicines, which are known only to Dr. Hoxie. And uh, this great medicine, it says millions of them are sold. Now, obviously, there were millions sold. And the bottle that I had, it said free sample. Uh, it was a free sample of this stuff. And inside the thing, it says this, this free sample will convince you for all time that this is an unbelievable remedy, and you will join the millions of people who have found blessed sure relief from hacking coughs. <laughs> and, you know, first of all, I was uh, reading this thing. I thought, gee, what a great bottle they have. And, and there it is. The stuff is in there. It's actually filled. It's, it's right to the top. It was beautifully sealed and everything. And, uh, you know, I'm a little afraid to take any of this stuff. I'll blow the top of my head off. Or I'll become totally addicted to opium. You know, in those days they had opium and stuff and things. And, uh, you know, you may become addicted to God knows what, uh, drinking this stuff. But, nevertheless, I thought, I thought to myself, you know, there must have been millions of people that were taking this stuff, and then all of a sudden one day it disappeared, just gone. And all that's left is this may be, this may be the only Bible left that I have. And I've got it. And there it is. It's, it's, uh, and this stuff was, was very popular, apparently, during the 1800s because the, uh, the sample had a date on it. Are you ready for this? Of 1871. Well, man, <laughs> that's a long time ago. But yet millions and millions of people bought this stuff. Now, I, I say that we have a lot of stuff around us today that uh, will be totally mysterious to people of, uh, of uh, a thousand years from now. And yet we take these things so much for granted that we just assume everybody will always know about them. Always. And that includes even people. For example, we accept the fact that the Beatles are like world famous. Well, do you think that the Beatles are going to be world famous uh, a thousand years from now? Never, you know, who the hell? You know, and they'll find references to them. They can't figure what the, what the devil the Beatles are. What is this Beatles thing? Uh, what, what, what was that all about? Uh, because there have been crazes, and particularly musical crazes, that have swept the world and then, for some reason or other, have completely disappeared. And uh, people in later times, of course, don't even remember. But at the time that it swept the world, it just knocked people out completely. Uh, it, I, in fact, the other day I'm working a, uh, I'm working a crossword puzzle. The New York Times always has stuff like this. And it says, uh, it's a famous soprano. And uh, four-letter word. Uh, what's the famous soprano? Four-letter word. Come on, do you know, Lee? A famous soprano, four-letter word. Well, this woman was the Beatles of her day. No. In fact, I'll tell you how big this woman was. I read a, a book about her. Uh, and so don't come around and say, Shepard, remember, there's no way, friend. This was, this, was uh, this was a great world phenomenon. I read a book about her. This woman, when she came to the United States, was booked into a circus in right in the middle of Times Square, and they lined, oh, what was time, the equivalent of Times Square at that time, by P.T. Barnum. <laughs> and, and they lined up like for blocks, day and night, to get tickets to hear this woman. 
It's just like the Beatles, huh? And most people don't even remember the name. Uh, Jenny Lind was her name. That is correct. Lee has picked that up somewhere. Now, that was the Beatles of, of her day. It really was. Uh, anybody that uh, is so big that when they come to America, they're booked into a circus. <laughs> and millions of people light up to hear it. That's, you know, the film of the Beatles. So, so it, it, the word has persists only. There are no records or anything like that. Persists. The word persists only in the crossword puzzle. And uh, I imagine a lot of people think that was a word invented by the Times to fill out a crossword puzzle word, you know, like Will Wang invented the, the Lind. <laughs> Hi, Wang, are you still listening? But uh, nevertheless, uh, this, this is a, this is a, uh, always, always interests me because when I saw that, that wire recording, now how do I know about wire recording? Well, very interesting thing about wire recording. Uh, one day, I was in a, in a radio station, uh, Old TV actor, the TV station out in the Midwest, and uh, a buddy of mine, an engineer out there, and uh, we were working, uh, doing a lot of stuff. I had a TV show out there and so on. And uh, one day he said we were doing a show that was a drama. It was kind of a drama. He said uh, I, I used to do these these takeoffs on, on the spy dramas and stuff on my TV show. So he said, "Listen, he's done." I, I've got something at home. He says, it'll really mystify him. And I said, what is that? He says, well, where do you see it? And so that night, he brought to the station, instead of a tape recorder, which we had all over the studio, uh, he brought this mysterious-looking little piece of equipment that had, like, glass windows on the top of it. And and we played the whole scene out where, where uh, I was having this conversation with this mysterious stranger with a great big black mustache. And uh, I had this little piece of equipment hidden in the fern plant. <laughs> and, and, and it was, we take shots of it doing it, see, it and, and we were having this long conversation, and he says, Bye, George, I will, don't you for one minute think that I will not come back, and when I come back, that will be your last day on Earth. Well, very interesting. Would you please repeat that louder, please? He says, Yes, when I return, it will be your last day on Earth. Ha, 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 ha. I said, very good, thank you. And uh, he says, and now I am about to leave, and don't you forget my threat. I said, you please repeat that again, please? He said, yes, I'm about to leave, and don't forget my threat. And he went storming out. And then at that point, I jumped up. I wonder if I got it. And I reached over, and I took my little machine, see? <laughs> and I turned it on, and it was going, yes, don't forget. I'm about to come back and kill you. And, and uh I got thousands of letters from people saying, my God, what a fantastic piece of equipment. Well, it was a wire recorder. And not only was it a wire recorder, I'll tell you even more than that, it was a wire recorder of, of very interesting background. But the wire recorder was apparently invented by the Ger Germans, the, the uh, German technicians, in the beginning of World War II, and was used as a spy device. And this was one that he, my, my engineer friend, who's been apparently in, in, the, in, the, in the intelligence, yeah, he was an intelligence, as a matter of fact, during World War II, and he had gotten a hold of a genuine German spy wire recorder. And uh, what, a, what a piece of, uh, of, uh, of trivia that would be to have today, wouldn't it? Actually had it. And uh, he got it in, in, in some uh, ruined bunker or something in Germany, and it was the real thing, man. 
and it had all kinds of German markings on it, and it actually worked. So uh, this this is all I know about why. The only wire recorder I ever actually saw was that one. Did you ever see any of Who made them in this country? Webcore? I'll be done. You mean the same company that makes uh, tape recorders, made uh, wire recorders. But uh, now I, I submit that this would be a totally opaque uh, piece of gear to most people. Now, you know, getting back to the... To, uh, to this whole business of, uh, of uh, education and, and uh, the disappearing words and the disappearing literacy. Ultimately, I think almost all of our, our personal uh, statistics will all be on tape, uh, even in, recorded in our own voice. I think they are going to use the voice in lieu of uh, the old thumb uh, print system. They'll take an analysis of I know they do that now. But I'm saying they will do it totally then. I'm not discussing what they do experimentally and occasionally now. I'm saying that everybody, instead of having his thumbprint recorded, will have his voice recorded. Uh, they will no longer an analyze uh, handwriting because people don't know how to write. <laughs> they, will, they will analyze your voice and say, yes, uh, you notice the way he raises uh, his... Uh, he, he, uh, he uh, states his D's. He has a, a hard glottal D. This shows a very aggressive personality. And uh, <laughs> in other words, there will be voice analysis experts, quote, uh, will arise. Analyze your voice. Uh, and and they, they will be a big deal because people will have forgotten how to write. Uh, precipitously in our time, almost, almost people I know today don't write letters anymore back and forth. They pick up the phone. They call their aunt in, uh, you know, Clinton, Iowa. Uh, if they, uh, they don't even send the uh, uh, Christmas cards anymore. Do you know that you can, that you can get a service now where you just supply all the names and personalized quote Christmas cards will be sent to everybody on the list. So <laughs> ultimately, writing will be a lost art. I bet a lot of people have not actually grasped a pen in their hand to write longhand something in a long time, but the only thing they write are their name at the bottom of a check. Uh, they may sign a, uh, a credit card uh, uh, chip that comes, you know, the waiter brings it. Even then they have trouble. How do I make a J? He goes, <laughs> you know, he has trouble writing his own name. And, and, and I think by the year 2000, this will be well advanced. Now, do you want to hear what it was like in another period? I want to give you something very interesting. I have here a copy of a fifth-grade reader of the year 1879. Do you hear what I said? That's almost 100 years. Uh, and do you want to know what kind of literacy was, was going around at that time? You know, we tend to believe that everything has been improved. Everybody is smarter now. Well, listen to this now. I'm just at random. I'm going to just, just at random open the fifth-grade reader. Look at this. Okay, well, right here. This is called McGuffey's, a very famous reader, McGuffey's Fifth Eclectic Reader for the fifth grade. And here it is, right here. Reprinted in its entirety. This is not the original one. But can you imagine this appearing in a fifth grade reader now? And these kids had to learn it, you know. What's this? This is called the Bobblelink. And you've heard of this bird. It's a bird, the Bobblelink. And it's a little piece about the Bobblelink. The happiest bird of our spring, however, 
And one that rivals the European lark, in my estimation, is the Bobble Lincoln, or Bobble Link, as he's commonly called. He arrives at that choice portion of our year, which in this latitude answers to the description of the month of May, so often given by the poets. With us, it begins about the middle of May, and lasts until nearly the middle of June. Earlier than this, winter is apt to return on its traces and to blight the opening beauties of the year, and later than this, begin the parching and panting and dissolving heats of summer. But in this genial interval, nature is in all her freshness and fragrance, quote, the rains are over and gone, the flowers appear upon the earth, the time of the singing of birds has come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in the land. The trees are now in their fullest foliage and brightest verdure. I'll bet a lot of you don't even know what the word verdure means. <laughs> and that's a really good word. That's verdant, green, uh, uh, leaves, leaves. Uh, the woods are gay with the clustered flowers of the laurel. The air is perfumed with the sweet briar and the wild rose. The meadows are enameled with clover blossoms, while the young apple, peach, and plum begins to swell and the cherry to glow among the green leaves. This is the chosen season of revelry of the bobolet. He comes amid the pomp and fragrance of the season. His life seems all sensibility and enjoyment, all song and all sunshine. He is to be found in the soft bosoms of the freshest and sweetest meadows, and is most in song when the clover is in blossom. He perches on the topmost twig of a tree, and on some long, flaunting weed, and as he rises and sinks with the breeze, pours forth a succession of rich, tinkling notes, crowding one upon the other, like the outpouring melody of the skylark, and possessing the same rapturous character. Sometimes he pitches from the summit of a tree, begins his song as soon as he gets upon the wing, and flutters tremulously down to the earth, as if overcome with ecstasy at his own music. Sometimes he is in pursuit of his mate, always in full song, as if he would win her by her melody, and always with the same appearance of intoxication and total delight. Of all the birds of our groves and meadows, the bobolink was the envy of my boyhood. He crossed my path in the sweetest weather, and the sweetest season of the year, when all nature called to the fields, and the rural feeling bobbed and throbbed in every bosom. But when I, luckless urchin, was doomed to be mewed up during the livelong day in a schoolroom, he perched on his reed and sang. It seemed as if this little violet mocked at me as he flew by in full song and sought to taunt me with his happier lot. Oh, how I envied him. No lessons, no task, no school. Nothing but holiday, frolic green fields, and fine weather. Had I been more then at that time versed in poetry, I might have addressed them in the words of Logan to the cuckoo, quote, Sweet bird, thy bower is ever green, thy sky is ever clear. Thou hast no sorrow in thy song, no winter in thy year. Oh, could I fly, I'd fly with thee. We'd make with joyful wing our annual visit over the globe, companions eternally of the spring. Now, isn't that beautiful? And this is in a fifth grade reader. <laughs> Boy, that teaches you something. Now, you're not going to say that's out of date. No way. That's a beautiful piece about a bird and, and, and a kid at 
So, you know, we have the idea that, that people in the, in, in the early days read things like, there goes Jimmy. He is going to see how the water is drawn from the well. No way. Now, that is from an actual fifth grade reader. I bet a lot of people who are college graduates would have trouble understanding most of those words, which are n none of them are outdated. They're real words and used by uh, literate people. Uh, do you want to hear some more of this? <laughs> I mean, it's fantastic stuff in this. Uh, listen to this now. This is called The Machinist's Return. On our way from Springfield to Boston, a stout, black-whiskered man sat immediately in front of me in the drawing room car, whose maneuvers were a source of constant amusement. He would get up every five minutes, hurry away up the narrow passage leading to the door of the car, and then commence laughing in the most violent manner, continuing that helpful exercise until he observed that someone was watching him. Then he would quietly return to his seat. As we neared Boston, these demonstrations increased in frequency and violence, but the stranger kept his seat now and chuckled to himself. He shifted the position of his two portmanteaus or placed them on the seat as if he were getting ready to leave. As we were at least 25 miles from Boston, such early preparations seemed extremely ridiculous. He became so excited at last that he couldn't keep the secret. Someone must be made a confidant, and as I happened to be the nearest to him, he selected me. just told you that now now the, the thing that, that that i find interesting in this you know is constantly there are pieces appearing in the book review section of the times wondering why the great novelists have not appeared in our generation well i think it's because we come from an from a from an almost illiterate century <laughs> in other words people of that time but it, 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 these were fifth grade kids reading this no wonder they grew up to be henry james no wonder they grew up to become uh uh, Melville. No wonder they grew up to, you know, become Edith Wharton and Willa Cather, and we grow up to become uh, Philip Roth. <laughs> you know, it's a fascinating difference. And and you notice that they write about the world. Uh, no, at no point do you do you find a guy in, in this thing writing about his sensibilities and how this chick didn't dig him. Uh, there's more stuff, uh, fantastic stuff in this. Uh, this is a fifth grade reader, and and it's authentic. It was reprinted uh, directly. Uh, listen to this one. This is called the singing lesson, and it's a poem. A nightingale made a mistake. She sang a few notes out of tune. Her heart was ready to break, and she hid away from the moon. She wrung her claws, poor thing but was far too proud to weep. She tucked her head under her wing and pretended to be asleep. A lark, arm in arm with a thrush, came sauntering up to the place. The nightingale felt herself blush, though feathers hid her face. She knew they had heard her song. She felt them snicker and sneer. She thought that life was too long and wished she could skip a year. Oh, nightingale, cooed a dove, Oh, nightingale, what's the use? You bird of beauty and love, why behave like a goose? Don't sulk away from our sight like a common, contemptible fowl. You bird of joy and delight, why behave like an owl? 
It is no crime to sing off notes. It is no crime to not have an ear for the beauty of music. In other words, it's a story about a nightingale who couldn't sing. <laughs> now that, that is imagination, you know? And, 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 and if you've ever read any of the kind of stuff that, that, uh, that, that, that passes for children's literature today, this call really great stuff, it is about as, it's about as earthbound as a Led Zeppelin. It's all, all illustration and hardly any content. And, uh, you know, it, and I'm not, I'm not sitting here, uh, uh, you know, I, <laughs> no way, there's no, uh, this is not nostalgia, anything like that. It's just a comment that, that once in a while you're hit by, by what's happening in your time. And that kid up in Brown, when he says eventually they're going to they have a thing called the Dead Sea Tapes, I think he was right. Uh, this is McGuffey's fifth reader. If you're curious about getting a copy of this, this has been reprinted in the Signet Classic uh, uh, series, McGuffey's Fifth Eclectic Reader. Uh, and it's a, it's a great, uh, and it even tells in the front how to pronounce it. It says McGuffey's, and then maybe it says, it says proper adjective, fifth, and then it says fifth adjective. Eclectic, and then it says adjective. I wonder how many of you don't even know what the word eclectic means. <laughs> Reader, and then it says Reader, now, 1879 edition. Listen to this line, and just at random, to endure slander and abuse with meekness requires no ordinary degree of self-command. Night coming on, both armies retired from the field of battle. As a dog returneth to his vomit, so a fool returneth to his folly. Not bad. Not bad. That's big-time stuff. But fifth eclectic reader. And uh, you know, there it is. I'm sitting here, you know, sitting here enjoying the reader. I hate to admit it. <laughs> Make way for liberty, he cried. Make way for liberty, and died. In arms, the Austrian phalanx stood, a living wall, a human wood, a wall where every conscious stone seemed to its kindred thousands grown, a rampart, all assaults to bear, till time to dust their flames should wear, a wood like that enchanted grove in which, with demons, Rinaldo strove, where every silent tree possessed a spirit prisoned in its breast, which the first stroke of coming strife would startle into hideous life. So dense, so still, the Austrians stood, a living wall, a human wood, impregnable their front appears, all abhorrent with projected spears, whose polished points before them shine from flank to flank, one brilliant line, bright as the breaker's splendors run, along the billows to the sun. The Austrians stood silent, like a human word. <laughs> Can you imagine little fifth grade kids working that stuff out, growing up to be Henry James? Edith Wharton, Herman Melville, this is the kind of stuff they, you know, they, they, they grew up on. Oh, man. And I, 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 it was a different world. Totally alien to our century. And now today, the fifth grade kid sits up there and watches up. This is a sea. Watch the sea dance. And the sea comes up and says, Cookie, give me cookie. Cookie monster. <laughs> to the wind, the quiet tears of man in remedy as he flutters 
ever flutters to the dark and circling rays of the eternal sun of the excoriated 